Welcome to Murder in the Black with Steph and MD. Welcome back to Murder in the Black. It is your host, Steph. I want to go ahead and say Happy New Year. I know that might feel a little premature because it is just December 28th, but because I am an avid avid podcast listener, I understand that I tend to neglect my podcast during the holiday season, which is why a lot of podcasters do recast or they take a break during this time, I think. And you know, People like me, I'm kind of just kind of left out here hosting a podcast feeling like not really knowing if anybody's really out there listening. So, you know, happy new year to everyone who is listening, because I want to give you something while we are in this funny part of the holidays where it's kind of like we're waiting on an album to drop, but really we just waiting on that next holiday to come so we can celebrate again. Y'all understand what I'm saying? So I wanted to give y'all, those people, something to to hold you, honey, until the new year. Because we will be taking a break during the new year, you know? So we'll be taking a week off um, to gather ourselves, regroup, and see what we want to do for 2024. So this this is what will hold you honey hold you into the next time so this podcast will be a little bit more conversational than any others um you know we'll, we'll, we'll kiki and talk and and catch all the tea now last week we did a two-part episode where we did two stories for you guys and those were listeners choice now you know if you've been listening here in recent weeks that we've been doing a combination of betrayal and deception and also listeners choice now we're going to slide right back into betrayal and deception as we will be leaving this theme in 2023 we won't be taking it with us if you're a part of our paid subscribers then you should already know um, because um, on our spot Spotify platform, you can actually see our episodes that we drop that are paid subscription, right? You can see it whether you're a paid subscriber or not. You just can't have access to it. So um, I dropped an episode on there for you guys. I will be dropping an additional episode again on Friday of this week. So December 29th, I'll drop another episode for you guys to enjoy. And those are just the perks that you get when you roll in with Murder in the Black. And I'm going to plug it every time for those of you who are rolling your eyes. No, I'm just playing. But I know I probably got some. But listen, I'm going to plug it every time. It's our paid subscribers. It's the fun. It's the fun crew. It's the fun club. We clicking up like high school. Okay? So let's go ahead and get into our true crime case for today. Today's story takes place in Cleveland, Ohio, and we meet Lieutenant William Walker, who was a firefighter. He was born August 2nd, 1968, and many characterized him as a helpful individual and a big teddy bear. So when he met his first wife, Rita, they fell in love and they got married in 1992 and had two children. Their names were Melody and Christopher. 
he loved both of his kids. He was a active father, very involved in their rearing. And I just think that naturally a lot of us think that when you become a parent, well, that means that you're going to provide. That means that you're going to be an active parent in their rearing and their upbringing. You're going to get involved in whatever they have going on in their extracurricular activities as well as their education. But let's face it, here in America and around the country, just because you become a parent does not mean that that means you will be active and that you would want to be involved in your parenting. And so I just think it's quite refreshing to find a black man who is successful, um, who is an active participant in raising his children. Because in the media, they try to act like black fathers, black good fathers are a myth. However, they're found in our communities, they're found throughout the world. And so for me, I know of many of black fathers, but to find a true crime case that highlights this is refreshing. And let me tell you, I watched an episode of Snap for this ep for some of my research with this case. And one of his peers that he worked with, I should say co-workers that he worked with, said that whenever you would ask Lieutenant William Walker about his kids, he would just become as bright as a star and then begin to give you a dissertation about how he loved his kids and what his kids were doing and it was just like a full out essay he even remarked that it like resembled a filibuster that they would give in the house like you know with a filibuster you can't stop it that person just goes on and on and on and he said it was just an amazing sight to see lieutenant walker talk about his kids but not only was he a passionate father about his marriage and also about his children he also was a passionate community helper i mean by god he was a firefighter and i don't know much about the world of firefighters i feel like we hear a lot about EMTs um, and police, but they're a part of first responders, right? Not even just when it comes to fires. I think we naturally think that, oh yeah, well, they go out to fires and they're the first responders there. No, firefighters are often paramedics as well, and they're trained in first responding and rendering out aid. And so he also was a part of that. And he absolutely loved being a firefighter. He participated in rope and car and rescue training for the firefighters, but also did a mentor train uh, program for civilians. And he would do that off hours when he wasn't even on the clock. So his passion and drive for helping others within his community to make sure that they could get themselves out of dangerous situations was something that was evident within his life. So it was no surprise when he um, joined the Prince Hall Masonry, which is considered to be a religious fraternity. So for anybody who out there who may be an Eastern star or who is a Prince Hall Mason, if y'all want to tell us a little bit about that, in addition to what I'm about to say, please, by all means, drop that in the question section for today's episode. Now, a little bit of background of the Prince Hall Masonry, I have to give you that because it, it is a part of Black history. And we kind of want to highlight that here on Murder in the Black, as we always do. So the Prince Hall Masonry is a historically Black branch of the free masonry that began in the 1700s. It was founded by a man named Prince Hall. He was a free African-American patriot 
and activists who played a significant role in the birth of the United States. The organization was established during a time of, you guessed it, racial segregation when many Masonic lodges denied membership to black participants. This fraternity has a revolutionary history and has been a champion for civil rights since its inception. It is the oldest, largest, predominantly black fraternity in the United States. It provides a meaningful community and experience for hundreds of thousands of members. And there are branches found throughout the world, okay? And so I also mentioned that it is the oldest black fraternity and that includes the fraternities that you find within the divine nine now i just think that is such an amazing uh fraternity to be involved in and oftentimes a lot of fraternities and sororities in the black community are founded within helping the community and providing charitable outlets for you to get involved and i really think that's impressive because i think a lot of people talk about helping the community and there are a variety of ways of helping the community and you don't have to join a fraternity to do so but i think this just speaks of William Walker's character. Not only was he providing community help being a firefighter, but obviously he found more ways to be involved. And so he joined this religious fraternity, the Prince Hall Masons, and he just, you know, went through the rankings pretty fast and became a part of the ranking system there, providing more help to his community in that way. However, as his career is shining bright, he's raising his children and also doing his thing within the Prince Hall Masons, something happens. His marriage to Rita starts to fall apart. And in 2002, they get a separation. Later on in 2004, they actually get a divorce. But thankfully, they remained friends you know they remained really good friends he and rita they are able to co-parent efficiently and a lot of that is centered around you know making sure that their children have a really good upbringing now they had a home on lampson drive that they raised their children in but when they got their separation and eventually they got their divorce rita went on to get her own house for her children but he stayed on Lampson Drive in that house. Well, you know, he was really involved in his career, as I've already said, and also in the Masons. But, you know, he just missed the camaraderie of having someone with him. He 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 was the person that I would characterize as he loved love. He loved partnership and he wanted that and he missed that since getting his divorce. Well, Shortly after his divorce and living alone, he meets this woman at a masonry event. Her name was Oma, and she was 34 years old. She also had two children of her own. She was a single mother. She was a nurse, and she was thriving in her career. So they started to date, and everybody thought they had such an amazing relationship, and they loved going to church with each other. They loved doing some of the same things. She had a son and his son had a girlfriend. And they moved in with William. 
William and his house on Lampson Drive. So their relationship kind of moved full steam ahead in the sense that it didn't take them a long time to move in with each other. They immediately moved in with one another and she moved in her son and her son's girlfriend and they eventually had a child together. So it was William, Oma, her son, his girlfriend and their child. And life was going pretty good. I mean, they had a good time and they dated for eight years. So there was no real rush in getting married. They just didn't feel the need to. And we don't know the reasons why, but it obviously wasn't a rush. Eight years is a long time. But that was until 2013, because in 2013, things had changed between Oma and her health. Oma received a diagnosis of breast cancer. And well, she needed health care. And it's unclear if she needed better health care than the one that she was receiving at her job, or she just didn't have health care at all. Either way, William, being the helpful person and being in love with this person, decided that it would just be the best thing if they go ahead and marry. That way he could put her on his insurance plan. Now, I think this is kind of funny. I'm like going through my head and like a Rolodex of my memories. And I had a friend, y'all, who his girlfriend needed health insurance and not because she had any like a, a health ailment that she needed to seek immediate help for, but she just, she just needed some health insurance, right? And they weren't married and he put her on his health insurance and he eventually got in trouble for that. So I just want to throw out there a little nugget, a little piece of advice. Listen, you can't just throw just anybody on your health insurance for the sake of, okay? You have to have some familial relationship with them and or be married, right? So I just, <laughs> just that was a memory. I told you I was going to be conversational today, okay? <laughs> so he goes ahead and he puts her on his health insurance and they're married now and everything is going well with her chemotherapy. She's getting the help that she needs and everything's full steam ahead because in addition to them being newlyweds and not just, you know, having to deal with her breast cancer diagnosis and dealing with that, but it's full steam ahead because now William Walker becomes a lieutenant. He's now Lieutenant William Walker. And of course, along with that um, title, he also receives a pay raise. And so he decides to move from his home in Lampson, on Lampson Drive, I should say, in Cleveland, Ohio, that they were going to move to Madison, Ohio. And they were going to move in this like, you know, suburb area, suburban area. And they also purchased new cars. And so you know, everything was going well. You know, she was getting the treatment. The treatment was working. They were married. He had a new house that he just purchased. And so they were all preparing for that. And so on November 3rd, 2013, which was a Sunday, um, Oma was packing the house, getting everything packed up to leave. And that's when she instructed William to go out and you know, go get them something to eat. It was, you know, past seven o'clock, go get them something to eat, come back. And they would finish packing and kind of having this like packing party to get ready to move the following day. But that's when a little past 8 p.m., 
A 911 dispatcher in Cleveland, Ohio, receives a frantic phone call from a woman. And this woman is literally screaming into the phone, telling the 911 dispatcher that she needs immediate assistance because her husband was shot and he is lying at the end of the driveway. She cannot stop, you know, asking for help. He's bleeding. Help him, please. He needs help. And so once the 911 dispatcher is able to, you know, find out that one, the shooter is no longer on the scene and, you know, what exactly happened, as much information as she can obtain from this frantic woman, she sends EMT and police and first responders out to the, out to the scene. Now, this person who called 911 dispatcher is Oma. She is frantic. And once EMT and first responders arrive at the scene, they see that it is indeed Lieutenant William Walker, who is at the end of the driveway shot. Now, William Walker is not deceased. He is still alive. He's still conscious. And so he tells first responders, hey, like someone shot me and they're in they're in the backyard, go to the backyard. And after he says that, it's like he just had enough strength to get that out and he is unconscious. Now, I've already told you that firefighter are considered first responders as a lot of them are paramedically trained. And so when they arrive on scene, they had no idea that they were going to see one of their fellow officers gun down on the scene. And so they were, they were mortified. They couldn't believe that the guy that they looked up to, the guy that they just seen was now laying down on the pavement. And they noticed that William has, his pockets are, you know, out, pulled out from his pants as if someone were trying to get something. And they also see that his wallet is not, is not on scene either. And so what, what would they think? They obviously are thinking, well, this probably is a robbery. So the police then go and search the backyard and the surrounding area, trying to see if they could probably locate the person who has shot William, but they can't locate him. No one is found. So Alma insists, and they allow her, of course, to ride with William to the local hospital so that he's able to um, get the life-saving me measures that he so desperately needs. Officers then secure the crime scene, and they notice that there is a woman on scene, and there is also a man along with a small baby, and these people are... Alma's son and his girlfriend and their young child. So what is protocol in these situations where you have people who are on scene of a homicide is that you are supposed to separate these individuals so that they have no room to corroborate a story if indeed they have something to do with the murder so that you can get these two accounts. And so they pull them to the side, they put them in separate spaces, with intentions of coming back to question them and they continue to secure the crime scene there they notice that there are four shell casings on the ground and they're nine millimeter shell casings which implies or indicates to investigators that this was overkill this person intended on killing him they weren't trying to lay him on his back 
They weren't just trying to injure him. It wasn't a warning. They indeed are trying to kill him. And this really makes investigators feel like, okay, this might be personal because it was just too much. It, you, there is such thing as too much in a homicide scene. So they back up the shell casings, hopefully trying to retrieve fingerprints or DNA from the shell casings that are found on the scene. So they turn that over to uh, the forensics department and they start to question Macklin, who is Alma's son's girlfriend. Her name is Ashley. So they ask Ashley what happened that evening. And she indicates that it was a pretty normal night. She had actually been living there with Alma and William for quite some time. And because Alma and William were planning to locate to Madison, Ohio in their new home, her and Macklin were going to rent out this house. It was a normal evening. Macklin was in the back playing his video game. She was tending to their baby and Alma was upstairs on the phone talking and packing in preparation for the next day. She says that sometimes after 7 p.m. she left and left her son there with Macklin because she went to go pick them up some food for the evening. She said when she arrives back home, she goes to the front door and that's when all of the chaos ensues. She hears her boyfriend Macklin just, you know, screaming and saying that someone shot William. And then she also hears Alma screaming for help. And then that's when she goes to the side or the back of the house and sees William on the ground. And Alma at that point is screaming for help, calling 911. And they ask her, they say, well, you know, does William have anybody that would that you know of that would want to hurt him? Has anything happened in recent weeks? And that's when she says that actually a confrontation did happen between William and some kids. And when I say kids, I mean like teenager, teenagers, young adults that happened on the street. She said that William was very strict about how people acted around his home. And, you know, he got into somewhat of a confrontation with some some kids and it didn't seem to lead to anything, but that is indeed what happened. And so, you know, if there, if that could have bred something like this to happen, she's thinking. And so investigators, they then go to Macklin and he tells them a very similar story. He was playing video games. Ashley went out to go get something to eat. And then, you know, he was shot. William was shot. He went outside and he heard the gunshots. And that's when he heard his mother and that's when he went back out. And he said that he did hear before EMT arrived on scene, he heard William saying that someone shot him from the backyard. So this, this is not just something that the police heard. This is something also that Macklin had heard. And he also tells them that there was a confrontation, but he adds a little bit more information because he said the confrontation that happened between William and the kids or the young adults out on the street, it was about one of them selling drugs and selling drugs around his house. And so that's what it was concerning. And according to police officers, their story was, was consistent with the evidence on scene. So they kind of felt like for the, for the time being, they were cleared. They gave the investigators a honest account of what happened that night. 
Now, of course, the news of this shooting spreads very quickly because it was a first responder and he was a he was a part of the community. Everyone knew William. And when everyone in the community found out about how he was gunned down, well, nothing really made a lot of sense. And everyone was just praying and hoping that he would survive this attack. So homicide investigators go up to the hospital where Alma and the rest of the family, along with some first responder brothers, uh, firefighter brothers, were um, supporting Alma. And they tried to interview her as she's awaiting news about William. And so they ask her, you know, what, what, what can you tell us about what happened? And she tells them that Ashley went out um, and got them something got Macklin and them something to eat. And then she tells them that also William went out to go get them something to eat at Popeye's and he was due to come back. And that's when she heard gunshots. But before she could even really get into the story, a doctor came by and intercepted the conversation. He told Alma that there was nothing more that they could do for William and unfortunately he passed away. She falls out into a hysterical cry and you know just begins to cry profusely but then it was almost like at a drop of a dime it turned and her grieving went into denial. She was like oh no he's not dead there's no way he is dead there's just no way he's not dead. And so investigators they, they decide that, you know, obviously this isn't the time to talk to her. We have to give her some time to grieve. And so they leave Alma there to grieve with friends and family, the death of William. And they go back to the neighborhood to canvas, to talk to witnesses, to talk to anybody who may have witnessed what happened during the shooting. And no one saw much. No, they didn't see anything prior to. They didn't see anything leading up to the murder. And so investigators agree that, you know, they need to really find out what happened but but the more that they find out the less that it's starting to feel like a robbery and the more that it's starting to feel like it was personal a personal attack on William so someone in the neighborhood by the name of Lance Coleman who went by Rex Coleman came to investigators mind they knew that he had a record for theft and also selling drugs. He was 27 years old. And actually at the time of the incident, he lived next door to Will. So they go to Rex's home and they try to locate him, but he is not there conveniently, right? And this really leads them to believe that he may have had something to do with this. And he's identified as the person that Will had actually got into a confrontation with. And so they know that they need to speak to Rex. They know that they need to talk to him and see if he knows anything about this murder since having this confrontation with Will. They then seek out the help of local media there in Cleveland, Ohio. And they ask for them to do several stories, encouraging the public to bring forth whatever evidence or tips that they know about this murder. And because the community loved William so much and they appreciated his service, they had no problem 
giving tips and tips began to pour in. And the name that kept coming up was Rex Coleman, the guy that they were already investigating, along with the name Chad. But this person by the name of Chad had no last name. So they really had nothing concrete to go with. It was just like, okay, this person's name Chad. But of course they were giving more credence to the name of Rex Coleman. Cause that's something that was someone they were already investigating. Now investigators get an additional tip that comes in from a man named Johnny Dent. Now Johnny Dent claims that he had relevant information because in the weeks leading up to William's murder, he owned a small office in a building where William conducted his paramedic training. He said that he knew William and on this occasion, William had some trouble getting into the building. So he realized he had some trouble. So he wanted to help. He helps him come into the building. And that's when William reveals to him that he's moving to Madison. And so he needs to pack up his training office so that he can move it to Madison with him to conduct training there for other civilians. And as they're having a conversation, Johnny just says, hey, man, you know, I can help you pack. No problem. I'm not doing a whole lot. And so they began packing and having a conversation. But he reveals to investigators that, you know, William receives several phone calls that seem very intense. William gets frustrated and angry, and it kind of becomes uncomfortable for Johnny to sit there. And he just is kind of troubled by these phone calls. However, when William gets off the phone, he is noticeably more relaxed. And so he stays and continues to help him pack. But upon hearing about William's murder, he wants investigators to know that this was a point of contention. Now, he doesn't know who William was on the phone with, but maybe this could be something or have something to do with William's murder. And although they didn't know, the police didn't know who he was talking to, they felt like this was a good starting point to have a conversation with Alma. So they call her back down to the police station to really get some more information from her because at this point she's had a time to grieve and they want to present the information that Johnny Dent gave to her. And the first thing that Alma says to investigator is that Will was such a great person. He was her perfect person and she doesn't know what happened, but she has to know what indeed happened to her husband. And Alma tells investigators that on the night of the murder, she sees another male at the end of the driveway. And he's just standing there looking at her. And it is the black male. And investigators, you know, their wheels start to turn in their head. And they believe that maybe it's Rex Coleman. Maybe it really was him that seek or sought out revenge on William because of the dispute. And if it wasn't Rex, well, maybe it was his associates that carried out this murder now you know they begin to ask her more about the confrontation that happens and she says you know she doesn't recall rex coleman but she believes that it was rex associates that william had this argument with and she doesn't really know what the argument was about but you know she knows that william felt threatened enough that when he would take out their dog for a walk he would carry his gun with him. So, you know, either it was more to what happened that Will didn't reveal to her, but it was obviously something because he felt the need to carry his gun. 
Now, they also ask her about the name of Chad. They're like, well, do you know anybody by the name of Chad? We've been getting that here recently and we don't have a last name, but do you know someone? And she says, oh yeah, Chad is my daughter's boyfriend. His name is Chad Pageant. And Chad and William had no contention. Like Chad's a good guy. There would be no reason to believe that he would have anything to do with this murder. And so they kind of like, oh, okay, sure. You know, this. They're at this point, they're relying heavily on Alma's word. So Rex Coleman is still a person of interest, but so is Chad Pageant, right? But they just don't have a whole lot of information on him. So they then go to the fire department in which Lieutenant William Walker was working. And, you know, firemen, if you didn't know, they actually live together. They live together. I think, I believe like the schedule could be like a week on and a week off where they live at the fire department. And so the firemen had a lot of information to give police and the police wanted any extra information so that they could solve this case. And they also mentioned that someone was giving William a hard time as well, that he would have these very intense phone conversations, much like Jenny Dent mentioned. And they wondered, was like it, it was it financial pressure? Was it a financial strain? They really couldn't figure it out. But they did say that his marriage was good. But he didn't like Chad. And that was chad pageant and contrary to what alma was saying they said that william did not want chad at the house he didn't like chad hanging around the house and they didn't have a good relationship and so police are really trying to figure out well why was alma telling us something totally different is there something here but that is when they're able to finally track down rex coleman because he gets arrested for another offense that was unrelated to this murder and they go down to the county jail and talk to him and thankfully and a little bit surprisingly he is very forthcoming with investigators i mean he's an open book he tells investigators yeah i did have an exchange a confrontation with william but it didn't lead to anything and actually I was actually out that night having pizza with my girlfriend. He gave them the name of the restaurant. He gave them his DNA, uh, his DNA. They gave him a swab, you know, everything that you possibly could, could want from someone who is a person of interest. He gave that to them willingly and just as soon as he could. So they were able to talk to the restaurant staff as well as his girlfriend and immediately they crossed him off the list. And you would think that this would be such a good thing that they were able to cross him off the list. But honestly, this stumped investigators even more because it was like, what? What in the world? Like, who did this then? Because this was <laughs> this was like the person that could have done it, had the resources to do it, and he got in a confrontation with. But now they're having to really scratch their head and really kind of start at ground zero with the investigation again. And this is when they bring in William's ex-wife, Rita. Now, I told you, Rita had a really, really good relationship with 
William, they remained good co-parents and they remained good friends after their divorce. But not only did Rita have a good relationship with William, which that is kind of expected, so to speak, but she also had a good relationship with Alma. They all just had this really, really good relationship, despite loving the same man at one point in time. Now, Rita claims that not everything was perfect with this new family. You know, their 17-year-old Jackie, which was Alma's daughter that she brought into the relationship, was really a source of contention for both William and Alma. But really, the contention really brewed and festered within William. And he kind of just felt like Jackie was spoiled. She was just spoiled and there was not a lot of accountability that Alma required of her daughter. And after hearing this information, police are trying to figure out why is Alma not telling us these things? Why is she trying to act as if her daughter and her daughter's boyfriend and everyone has this amazing relationship when that's not really the case at all. Instead of confronting Alma with all this contrary information she's been getting, giving them and, you know, cross-reference to others who are giving police information, they then go and conduct an interview with Jackie. They bring her in and at the time she's 17 years old and she tells them pretty much nothing. She volunteers nothing. She's not forthcoming. She's very cagey, acts like she has something to protect. And, you know, they ask her about the relationship between her boyfriend, Chad, and William. And she says exactly what Alma says. She says, Alma and William love Chad. We all had this really, really good relationship and we liked each other and we got along. All right. So they asked her, where was she on the night of the murder? And she tells them that she was at Chad's mother's house, which was on the west side of Cleveland, along with Chad. They were there at the house watching TV. And they find out that she actually moved in with Chad's mother at the age of 16. And she was like transient. She would go back and forth to Chad's house and then go to her mother's alma, alma and William's house together. And she would just do that thing back and forth, right? And they asked her, they said, well, where does he live? Like, what's his address? And can you give us his phone number? Well, she says, well, I don't, I don't know that. I don't know that information. And they're like, either you're real dumb or you're, you, you don't want to tell us something. It's either, or it can't be both. So they then run like a background check on Chad and they find out that Chad is a low level drug dealer. But other than that, there's no violence in his past and, they don't really have any other information to go on. So they bring in Chad and they talk to Chad. And Chad is the exact same way where his disposition is the exact same way as Jackie. Very cagey, very disillusioned, not forthcoming, not open. And he tells them that he was indeed on the night of the murder watching TV with Jackie. And, you know, he had a good relationship with William. He doesn't really have anything more to tell investigators. And we all know that when you don't have enough evidence to to arrest someone, you have to let them go. Suspicion is not enough. But right when they release him, a couple of weeks later, they get the forensics returned to them of those shell casings. And there was indeed prints and DNA found on those shells. So they run that through CODIS and nothing comes back. 
So another high to hit yet another low for investigators in Cleveland. But the one thing they go and retrieve are the cell phone records of everyone involved or closely aligned with the murder of William. And that is Oma, that's Jackie, that's Chad, that's Macklin, that's Ashley. And remember, Macklin and Jackie are almost children. Ashley and Chad are their significant others of the children, right? So they go and they retrieve those phone records. Now, phone records, not only we've, let me review. Let's review, okay? Let's do a murder in black, true crime, details review okay now we all know that cell phone records can tell you who has called the person and who the person who has who the person has made phone calls out to but not only that because of our old good and handy tech we can now say where exactly those phone calls were placed and those and that is because of a thing called cell phone towers and so they were able to see that Chad, who claimed he was on the west side of Cleveland, was actually on Lampson Road a couple of hours before and during the time that Williams was killed. So they take this information and they give this to Chad. And Chad, baby, Chad starts to sing like a canary bird, just like Tweety, honey. He tells them, listen, I was there, but I did not pull the trigger. So, Alma arranged this murder and he told them. He said that a few weeks before the murder occurred, Alma came to him and told him that William was abusing her. He was physically harming her and doing everything under God's son to abuse her. And she said that she needed help to get out of the situation. And she offered him $10,000 to carry out the murder. Now, he says, listen, I can't do it but I can get somebody to do it for you. So she says, all right, that's good. She gave him a couple of hundred dollars and asked him to go and make sure that it got done. So he then goes to his cousin by the name of Chris, who was the guy in the hood that you go to to buy a gun, right? Illegally. And so his cousin gets him the gun but then he says, I know of a guy who will do this murder for you. His name is Ryan Doherty. Chad goes out and talks to Ryan Doherty. Ryan Doherty agrees to shoot William for, get this, a couple of hundred dollars and some weed. I'm going to say that again. He agrees to shoot William for a couple of hundred dollars and some weed. Now, they are able to match everything that Chad is telling them to the bullets because they find not only Chad's DNA on the bullets, but they also find Ryan Doherty. Now, they go and pick up Ryan Doherty, Christopher Hyde, who is Chad's cousin who sold the gun, and Jackie also. They pull them all in and they all just tell it. You know, Ryan Doherty says, yeah, 
I was the shooter. Jackie, hi, Jackie, I'm sorry. Jackie says that, yeah, I knew about the murder. I knew that it was going to happen. And Chris Hyde admits to selling Chad the gun. And they all claim that Alma told them that William was abusing her. And that was the reason why he needed to go. Now, investigators, they they kind of, you know, they research a little bit about this abuse, but nothing is substantiated. There is no, um, you know, domestic abuse papers that have been filed, no no separation, no, no nothing that can substantiate anything having to do with the abuse. So what they follow is the money trail because money talks and the rest walks. And what they find out is that tons of credit cards were being opened in Will's name and he had no idea. So when bill collectors start calling him on the phone to retrieve their money for the credit cards that were being used in his name, well, he was absolutely dumbfounded. He couldn't believe it. He couldn't understand. So those phone calls that the firefighters were seeing him take, and he was very, you know, being very intense and frustrated. And Johnny Dent saw him take, and he was very frustrated. These were bill collectors that were calling his phone, and he couldn't understand why they were calling him because he had no idea that credit cards were being taken out in his name. Now, Alma tells Chad that he would, he would receive, you know, the rest of his money. I'm guessing the $10,000 once she was paid out by this life insurance and she was going to be, t be able to take care of all the bills that she had, you know, matriculated and had, you know, gained because she was using credit cards in her husband's name. So she was awaiting a hundred thousand dollar life insurance payout. But the big T he, he is that not only was she awaiting this $100,000 payout, but as investigators are investigating, honey, they find out that she, meaning Alma, did not have cancer. They found nothing that could, that could substantiate that she had cancer at all, at all. But I think the biggest thing, in addition to that, because that's huge, the fact that she didn't have cancer is huge. But the biggest thing is right before she stood trial, I mean, before she stood trial, she found out that that $100,000 payout that she thought she was going to get for the death of her husband, oh, well, you yeah, know, she was never scheduled to get that. Who was and who did receive that was his ex-wife, Rita, he left Rita's name on that policy to ensure that in case anything ever happened to him, that his children were going to get that money because he wanted his children to receive any monetarily get any any monetary gain from his death so that they would be taken care of. Now, it is believed that she faked that whole chemotherapy, that whole cancer, cancer diagnosis so that she could marry him and then 
set up the situation to receive that $100,000. Do you follow? So on November 3rd, 2013, she prepared everyone. Everyone meaning Jackie, Chad, and Ryan to participate in this murder. She set the whole thing up. She sent a text message to Jackie that said, come home now. Once William left to go get the food, she sent that text message to Jackie. That was code for it's time to carry out the murder. Chad was Chad and Ryan were close to the house during this time. They carry out the murders and they were able to track the cell phones. So when her trial came on July 21st, 2017, her trial began, they were able to present ironclad evidence against Alma that she had participated in this murder. She arranged this murder. And while she did not pull the trigger, she pulled the trigger, right? But the thing that really really troubled the jury and also me as I was researching this case was the fact that this lady y'all did all of this orchestration pulled the trigger without pulling the trigger and was able to put on a Oscar worthy performance on that 911 call she was able to do an Oscar worthy performance at that hospital amongst detectives and family and friends when that doctor delivered the news that William had died. All the time knowing that she was the person responsible. Now, investigators revealed that they are confident that Macklin, her son and his girlfriend had no idea of the conspiracy to commit the murder. And on July 2nd, 2017, she was found guilty of aggravated murder and she received a life prison a life prison sentence with no parole and she showed absolutely no remorse none whatsoever now ryan received who was the shooter he received 23 years to life and chad received 28 years to life for orchestrating and setting up that murder. And I do believe that they will receive parole. You guys, that is the end of Lieutenant William Walker's case. Takeaway. Now I told you guys we were going to kiki and this was going to be a conversation. So this will not be our typical takeaway here on Murder in the Black. We're just going to talk, okay? Or I'm going to just talk to you and then you can talk back. How about that? So listen, this case is one of the ultimate betrayals because I have done a case on our paid subscription and we've done cases here before where we had parents who killed their children. And I just think that is just against the laws of nature, right? But I feel like in this situation, this was also an ultimate betrayal because although we've seen people set up murders of their significant others here on Murder in the Black time and time again, right? But this one, I think, was a betrayal that is threefold. And you might be saying, well, how? 
Well, to me, not only did she betray him when she lied about having breast cancer so that he would marry her because she knew that William was a good man and that he did not want to see her without either the best of health insurance or health insurance, period. Right. So she knew he was going to do that. But simultaneously, she knew that she was opening up credit cards in his name. Right. And so she, in my mind, had already plotted to murder him. That was a thought that was percolating in her brain already. It was already there. From the time that she said that she had cancer, that's number one betrayal. Then she knew she was opening up credit cards in his name and that at some point after maxing out those credit cards, those people would want that money back. Money that obviously she did not have, right? So then she had to figure out a way to capitalize on the fact that now that she was married to him, she was like, well, now I can be on his insurance policy. But the ding dong didn't have enough wherewithal to figure out or to ask am I on that life insurance policy? And thank God she didn't. But it just goes to show you how she was over here plotting on him, plotting on him, but didn't have enough intelligence to go find out whose name was on the life insurance policy. I mean, you dummy. Seriously. How dumb can you get, Oma? Oma. So the first betrayal was lying about cancer The second betrayal was taking out credit cards in this man's name. And the third and ultimate betrayal was taking his life to cover up your own doo-doo. Okay. I mean, so she just, every way that she could get back at this good man, she did and tried. And if you listen to our our paid subscriber episode last week, You'll find out that there were talks of physical abuse that actually did happen in that relationship. But in this relationship, this was a farce. And this is our second case on our main platform where we have talked about women who allege abuse and it doesn't happen and it has not occurred. And they're yelling and screaming and crying wolf when the wolf or said wolf has done nothing. And they use that as a way and tool of manipulation. We need to have a conversation about that because you women make it hard for the women who actually receive the abuse. You make it hard because you want to be a narcissist and you want to be a manipulator and downright you just want to be Satan. What is happening? We need to have that conversation. We need to just have it. So I'm so happy that Alma wasn't as smart as she thought she was, that there were several things that led her to reveal her hand. And I just think the fact that she manipulated her daughter into participating in that and, and, and these young people, right? Like, I mean, I'm glad that Ryan and Chad are in prison because they need to have consequences. But let's face it, like these were young people and young people can be manipulated. She manipulated her daughter. Her daughter didn't face any time that I could find. But, you know, she manipulated these people into her con. She took them down. 
All for what? For some money you wasn't never going to get. Now that's the ha-ha from the grave. In the end, Lieutenant Walker had the last say. But it's just so sad, I mean, to kind of get off of the betrayal for a second and just go to the core of this case, which is the man. I just think it is so incredibly sad that he lost his life in the way that he did because he gave. He was a giver. And some people are just natural givers. They they, they love to give and to give back. And I think when, whenever you're in these service industries, um, like a community helper, and you're constantly giving, giving, and... You know, he really felt like Oma would not lie to him. So when she said she had cancer, why would he or anybody feel like that's something that you have to go and substantiate? Like, okay, let me go to the doctor with you. Let me see the paper that says cancer. It just speaks to his loving nature and his helpfulness and his willingness to do the right thing to help others. And I think that is the thing that trailblazes throughout his character and throughout his life and so my deepest condolences to his family Rita to his daughter Melody and Chris I I, my condolences to you and your family I know you are experiencing an incredible loss so that is our story for today hope you guys have enjoyed it we didn't get a whole lot of feedback on last week's episode in terms of the question that I asked you which was what did you think ultimately happened out there to LJ and um when he was out there at that park with his friend not a whole lot of you responded and I actually did not put a poll up last week so we cannot do poll results and for the most part pretty much everybody um the people who did respond you can go and see their responses um but one person asked a question that I forgot to mention on last week's episode so if you haven't checked out last week's episode Go check that out so you know what I'm talking about. But he asked, he wondered, did they find LJ's phone? And were they able to see if there was something that may have caused him to be upset? Or were they able to find any evidence there? And my friend, as far as I know, there is no evidence there. They never said they found the phone or that they found anything on the phone. So to me that they either found it and there was nothing there or they never found it. It was never retrieved. So, you know, hey, we'll never know. But we will continue to update you on that case as it is updated. And we hope and pray that it is updated. So I hope that you guys continue to have a happy holiday and you know, we're going to be taking a break. So if you want to enjoy some new content, definitely hop on our paid subscription. Check it out. We have about 12 to 13 episodes on there for you to enjoy of crime cases that I know you will not want to miss. But until next time, friends, we will see you next week. Oh, I'm lying. We will see you the week after next. So let me look at my handy dandy calendar, y'all, to tell you exactly what next week will be. So we will not be back on the 4th, but we will be returning on the 11th. Now, because I love y'all so much, I will be pulling one of our episodes from our paid subscribers. And I will be putting that for a recast, so to speak on our main platform for the fourth just so y'all can't miss anything because i know y'all gonna be back at work and on thursday you're gonna want something to enjoy so i got you i just i love y'all that much can you feel the love 
through your speakers okay so make sure you share if you care these episodes with friends and family i want to make sure that you guys are sharing these episodes especially the episodes that you did not know about or you want to garner more awareness around make sure you're sharing those episodes and make sure you go ahead and tune in and become a part of the fan club over on mib page subscriptions this is murder in the black Thank you.